Hey, murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, who were also known as the Ken and Barbie Killers. This one has been requested many, many times. So, here we go. Paul Bernardo was born on August 27, 1964 in Scarborough, Ontario. So, let's get into some history for that time. In 1964, we see that the Vietnam War was in full swing. U.S. involvement had dramatically increased just the year before under President John F. Kennedy, going from just under a thousand military advisors to over 16,000. Also around this time, North Vietnam sent 40,000 soldiers to fight South Vietnam. Not long after, John F. Kennedy was assassinated and President Lyndon B. Johnson took over. And speaking of John F. Kennedy, the Warren Commission report on his assassination concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone. Because sure. Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Peace Prize this year as well for his efforts in leading the nonviolent resistance against racial prejudice and segregation in the U.S. He was, at that time, the youngest to have ever received it. He was awarded $54,000, which he promptly donated to his cause, furthering the civil rights movement, which was also a very big deal during this time. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, signed into law by President Johnson, made it illegal to discriminate against someone based on their race, religion, sex, national origin, or color of their skin. It also made segregation in public places illegal. It enforced the desegregation of schools and also addressed unfair and unequal access to voting and voter registration. But that didn't stop the race riots in Harlem this year. In later 1964, the Mariner 4 spacecraft was launched by NASA. Its mission was to photograph and study the atmosphere of Mars. It reached Mars just eight months later and was the first successful mission to reach the Red Planet as well as the first to provide images of another planet from deep space. The first Beatles album released in the U.S., quote, Introducing the Beatles, was released this year. And the first Ford Mustang was made this year. Also, Malta gained its independence from the UK. Work also began on the Aswan Dam in Egypt, diverting the Nile to a man-made canal. The British and French governments announced their commitment to build a tunnel under the English Channel. In Scotland, the Queen opened the fourth road suspension bridge that connected Edinburgh to Fife. 
And finally, Nelson Mandela in South Africa, along with seven others, were sentenced to life in prison. So this was the atmosphere that Paul was born into. His parents were Bill, though I couldn't find his last name, and Marilyn Eastman. Bill and Marilyn met in high school and were very much in love. However, Marilyn's father forbade her to marry Bill because, at the time, he was just not able to support her. Now, Bill did go on to become a successful man who worked in insurance. Now, we'll come back to Bill. Stick with me. Marilyn Eastman was adopted by a very wealthy family. Her last name had been Hamilton before that. Her biological parents, Ross and Elizabeth Hamilton, put her, her two sisters, and one brother up for adoption, though I wasn't able to find out why. Now, her adoptive father was the very successful Toronto lawyer, Gerald Eastman. Her mother was Elizabeth. They did have a biological son first. Now, it's reported that Marilyn had an idyllic childhood. People who had known her said she was a happy teenager, raised in a proper, affluent family by kind and understanding parents. She was described as being attractive, blonde with a broad and open face. She had fallen for a boy named Bill for sure, but her father did not approve of his financial situation and instead chose Kenneth Bernardo for her because he was educated. She really had no say in the matter. Now, Kenneth Bernardo was the son of an Italian immigrant, Frank, and an Englishwoman by the name of Mary. Kenneth was the last of three children. The oldest was a brother and then an older sister. Now, according to Kenneth, he and his siblings survived a horrible childhood. He states he endured the least of the abuse, according to the book Invisible Darkness, The Strange Case of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, but that his childhood was, quote, troubled and difficult. He says his father treated his children like stubborn mules, and they all fought horribly. But his father was also a pretty successful man, having made a comfortable living off of marble and tile. Kenneth says his father effectively stopped beating his mother when he was around five years old, but they still never really got along. Now, Kenneth's brother in 1950 was caught doing some kind of criminal act, though I didn't find out what, and he was arrested. This humiliated the whole family, of course, but Kenneth is quick to say that his brother was a sadist that was, quote, twice diagnosed as a psychopath, unquote, who went on to be a police officer. Curious. In 1957, Kenneth earned a bachelor's of arts degree and went on to be an accountant. So Kenneth and Marilyn married in 1960. The ceremony was small held at Marilyn's parents' home, and there were few guests. Needless to say, the bride was a bit solemn. They settled into a small apartment, and immediately Kenneth began to physically abuse Marilyn. She gave birth to their first child, a son named David, the next year, and then their daughter, Deborah, the year after that. So, in late 1963, 
Marilyn, who was still enduring the abuse from her husband, began having an affair with her old high school beau, Bill. Bill, at this point, was married and had begun to have children of his own, but nonetheless, their connection was strong and they had an affair and Marilyn became pregnant. Somehow or another, Kenneth knew the baby wasn't his, but when Paul was born, he was listed as the biological father. People who knew Marilyn commented on how very sullen she seemed anymore since her marriage. They also noted how very negative Kenneth was. So when Paul was around a year old, they moved to a more well-to-do neighborhood, which did perk Marilyn up some. They could see Lake Ontario from their two-story house, and they began saving to even dig an in-ground pool. Now, Marilyn also kept a journal, and in it she wrote about Paul. She wrote, quote, This one is not the least bit affectionate. He's very selfish and stubborn, unquote. She also wrote that he had many allergies and that by the time he was two and a half years old, he still wasn't talking. She wrote, quote, stammers a lot, unquote. But as it turned out, his tongue was attached to his palate by a thin piece of skin, which was preventing him from being able to speak clearly. This was, of course, corrected, and he went to speech therapy. Outside of that, he was a normal child. Others described young Paul as a happy child, that he was respectful and well-disciplined. They said he had a sweet smile and was active in the Boy Scouts. But there was no mistaking that Paul loved himself. But life in the Bernardo household was not what it seemed from the outside. Kenneth, the father, had been molesting his daughter, and Marilyn was fully aware. When her daughter went to her to tell her that her own father was touching her inappropriately, Marilyn said to her, quote, how could you make up such lies, unquote. And yet, supposedly in the evenings, when the family would sit around the living room to watch TV, Marilyn would actually see Kenneth fondling their daughter, and she would just turn her head and keep watching TV. She did take to sleeping down in the basement, though Marilyn did. She and her husband ceased to share a bed, and she created a space down in the basement for her to escape what she knew was going on upstairs. And indeed, Paul's older sibling had a terrible time trying to sort through and deal with the abuses from their father, and yet Paul didn't seem to be phased whatsoever. Then in 1975, when Paul was 11 years old, his father was charged with child molestation of another girl and was then a convicted sex offender. Now, Bill, Paul's biological father, right? So Marilyn wanted him to at least be able to see his son. So some sources say she would take young Paul to the local McDonald's for a treat. And Bill would sit in the corner and just watch Paul, but he didn't want anything to do with his upbringing whatsoever. When Paul was 16 years old, he was considered quite handsome, and it was very obvious that the girls loved him. He had a way with girls, and they all described him as a silver-tongued devil. 
They even admitted that it was easy for him to talk them into being intimate with him. But beneath, he was starting to develop deep, dark sexual fantasies and liked belittling women in public as well as beating the girls he dated. But also when he was 16, his mother walked into his room out of nowhere and threw a picture of a man at him and told him that Kenneth was not his biological father. She told him he was a bastard and he might as well get used to it. Paul looked at the picture and he noticed immediately that the man looked exactly like him, which fascinated and also horrified him. He would never look at his mother the same. He described her as a giant troll that lived in the basement, never cooked for them, and even if she wanted to, there was never any food in the house anyway. His father, in front of the children, openly mocked Marilyn, who had, by now, put on a considerable amount of weight, and so Paul just followed suit. It was also around this time that Paul got his first serious girlfriend, a girl named Nadine. He was pretty crazy about her, and that's putting it mildly. She stated that Paul was extremely controlling and overprotective. Finally, Nadine broke up with Paul to date a friend of his, and Paul went into a rage. He collected everything he had of hers and set it on fire. Paul went on to graduate from Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate Institute in 1982 and worked for Amway, and he took his job very seriously. People he worked with stated he bought books and tapes from motivational, quote, get-rich-quick experts. Paul was intrigued by the Brett Easton Ellis novel, American Psycho, and read it over and over. And side note, I think most of us have seen that movie. It's excellent if you haven't. And then we see Paul starting to hit up the bars and he's charming the ladies into having sex with him. He goes on to enroll at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus and begins telling a friend of his of how, you know, he fantasized about having a virgin farm where he would have a large number of women who would be all but begging to be with him, so to speak. But for the most part, any women that he dated would dump him due to his abusive and controlling behavior. And if they told anyone else how he treated them, he would threaten to kill them. So in 1985, 21-year-old Paul found out that his father had been busted for being a peeping Tom in their neighborhood, which of course humiliated the whole family. He had a couple of girlfriends here and there, and some he was even seeing at the same time. Another one broke things off with him, and he began making obscene phone calls to her, getting him yet another restraining order. In 1987, Paul graduated from college and became a junior accountant for a respectable firm. Also this year, Paul began sexually assaulting young women whom he stalked after they got off the bus late in the evening. That May, he raped two women, one he had followed home and raped in front of her parents' house, the other in the backyard of her parents' house, and that one lasted for over an hour. 
In July, Paul attempted another rape, but quickly left because she viciously fought back. In September, Paul broke into the house of a 15-year-old girl. He entered her bedroom. He jumped on her, bruising her face, and he bit her ear. He threatened her with a knife, but ran from the house when her mother entered the bedroom and began screaming. And now on to Carla. Carla Homolka was born on May 4, 1970 in Port Credit, Ontario. Her father, Carol, was a Czechoslovakian immigrant who made a living as a traveling salesman. Her mother was Dorothy Sager. Her parents had met when Dorothy was 16 and Carol was 20. Carol was described as having an easy, laid-back personality. The two began dating in 1962 and married in 1965. Carla was the first of three daughters, and while she was an infant, the family lived in a trailer park. But they did move into a middle-class house in St. Catharines not too long after. Carla was described as a pleasant child. She did very well in school and was considered quite intelligent. She did have asthma, which meant many visits to the doctor, but it didn't slow her down at all. She was a diligent student and liked to be the best. Her IQ was tested to be 134, which put her in the top 2% of the population. Her memory was extraordinary and she loved learning. There are reports that Carla's father began to drink heavily and her parents fought pretty intensely. Carla began showing obsessive tendencies when she was in upper grade school. She had an impressive Barbie and Ken doll collection and their clothes, their hair, everything had to be perfect. Her friends said she had become bossy and controlling, but never mean. She did start writing small stories and showed some talent in that area at 14 years old. Carla also found a love for photography, and her favorite subject was often the family cat, Mishka. Also in her teen years, she began shouting at her parents and slamming doors, which her other siblings did not do. Her father, when he drank, called Carla a whore and a slut due to her incessant need to get attention from boys. At some point, Carla turned her attention from photography to animals. Then, unfortunately, Mishka was hit and killed by a car. Later that night, she and a friend supposedly went out and dug the cat up to see what its corpse looked like. This is when she decided to become a veterinarian. Now, once in school, Carla seemed to live in two worlds. Sometimes she seemed very happy and would speak happily about going to college and becoming a veterinarian. Other times she wouldn't speak at all for sometimes weeks at a time. Carla once cut her own wrist in a suicide attempt. Her favorite movies were horror flicks like Friday the 13th, which made an impression on her. She loved the storyline about these young virgins being slashed and hacked up by a psychopath. Now, Carla's little sister, Tammy, absolutely adored her older sister. 
There was, of course, the normal sibling rivalry, but they actually got along pretty well. If Carla's asthma was acting up, for example, Tammy was right there to assist. And in high school, the boys began noticing Carla. She blossomed into a beautiful young lady, though some sources say that she never really was boy crazy. She did date a boy for a while, whom she liked very much, but he and his family moved down to the States, Kansas to be exact. She wrote to him and even announced to her family that she was going to visit him. Her parents forbid it, but she snuck out and went anyway. This boy was the first sexual experience she had ever had, and after this, she began fantasizing about taking sex to the next level, developing kinks, if you will. And then Carla began to change. She once told a friend, quote, You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to put dots all over somebody's body and take a knife and then play connect the dots and then pour vinegar all over them. Unquote. So at the end of her senior year, Carla wrote in a friend's yearbook, quote, Remember, suicide kicks and fasting is awesome. Bones rule. Death rules. Death kicks. I love death. Kill the fucking world. Unquote. At 17 years old, Carla got her first real job in a pet store in the local mall, and while at work one day, she discovered there was going to be some convention in Scarborough regarding pet stores and whatnot, and she was desperate to go. So she told her parents, took some friends, and got a room in a hotel. It was in this hotel's restaurant that very night that Carla met Paul Bernardo. He was 23 at this time. The attraction was immediate, and they had sex that same night. Paul got her number and address, which was not usually like him, and from then on, Paul would drive to see Carla like twice a week, and it didn't take long for him to begin controlling her whole life, how she dressed, what she ate, how much she ate. He called her fat and ugly. And Carla easily submitted to his sexual behavior, writing his indications on a, quote, self-improvement list. A friend of hers discovered this list, and some of the things on it were like having a healthy diet, exercising regularly, having good hygiene, and so on. So when Carla finally revealed that she was not a virgin when they met, Paul was upset but it apparently was not a deal breaker. Now, Paul continued attacking and raping women, and Carla was fully aware. The local authorities put together a task force to find the Scarborough Rapist. One of his victims stated her attacker had a woman with him who filmed the incident. And even though Carla Homolka knew her boyfriend was assaulting and raping other women, she continued to stay with him. Police officials released a statement to the public warning them to be careful at night due to the Scarborough rapist. In May of 1988, Paul was nearly caught as he hid under a tree watching a bus station. The officer gave chase, but Paul ran and wasn't caught. So throughout 1988 and into 1989, 
Paul had several near misses as he attacked and raped women. They would scream and alert their neighbors to come and chase Paul off. Also during this time, Paul began seeing another girl by the name of Anna while he was still also seeing Carla. He also teased and yet demanded that Carla's younger sister, Tammy, not have sex with any guy. She was to remain a virgin. In May of 1990, Paul quit his job and started smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border. In November, two detectives visited Paul and took blood, saliva, and hair samples from him, but they wouldn't be tested for two years. Now, due to the fact that Paul was never very happy about Carla not being a virgin, he had become fixated on her sister. The first attempt to allow Paul to have his way with Tammy involved Carla lacing Tammy's food with Valium that she got from her veterinarian tech job. However, Tammy woke up quickly before Paul could rape her. The second attempt was later that year, close to Christmas. Carla's family were having their holiday dinner, and Carla promised Tammy's virginity to Paul as his Christmas gift. Once Carla and Tammy's parents went to bed upstairs, Carla and Paul put sleeping pills in Tammy's drink. Paul began to rape Tammy as soon as she was unconscious, and Carla held a halothane-soaked rag to Tammy's face, which is an anesthetic, to keep her unconscious. And also, Carla videotaped the whole thing. Tammy began to vomit, and she stopped breathing after Carla held her down to try to clear her throat. They unfortunately were not able to revive her, so they simply put her clothes back on her, moved her into her own bedroom, and then took the time to clean up the evidence before they called 911. And although Tammy had a huge, visible chemical burn on her face, her death was somehow ruled an accident. At the funeral, Paul was caught stroking Tammy's hair as she laid in an open casket, which made several people very uncomfortable. But as life often does, Paul and Carla moved on and moved to another city. They began recording themselves role-playing sex scenes between Paul and Tammy, where Carla pretended to be her sister and even wore her clothes to reinforce the fantasy. June 7, 1991, Carla Homolka asked a teen girl that she worked with at the veterinarian clinic if she'd like to come over to their new house. After being given a drink laced with a drug for insomnia, she passed out. Carla told her boyfriend that she had a surprise pre-wedding gift for him and the two filmed each other as they raped her. The teen woke up the next day feeling very sick to her stomach, but she left not really knowing that she had been raped. A week later, Paul took a detour to another city to steal license plates to use in his cigarette smuggling business, and that's where he met 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. Now, Leslie had been locked outside of her house because she had missed her curfew. After Leslie asked him for a cigarette, Paul led her to his car, where he suddenly blindfolded her. He forced her inside and drove her to his and Carla's house. 
He told Carla that they had a playmate and the two filmed themselves as they raped her. Unfortunately, Leslie's blindfold fell off, making it so that she could identify them. So Paul strangled her and kept the body in their basement while they dined with Carla's family upstairs. They then later dismembered the body and threw the remains in Lake Gibson. Two weeks later, Leslie's remains were found by a couple who were canoeing. This was on the same day that Paul and Carla got married. And what a wedding it was. Carla had this beautiful white dress and Paul looked quite handsome in his tux. They were driven away from the church in this over-the-top, white, fancy, horse-drawn carriage. It would appear no expense was spared for the couple. In April of 1992, Paul and Carla encountered 15-year-old Kristen French and asked her for directions. Carla exited the car with a map and Paul came around and threatened her with a knife, forcing her into the car. They kept her at their house for three days, raping and torturing her, and Carla videoed the whole thing. Also, while the girl was there, she was forced to watch footage of Leslie's rape. Then Paul murdered Kristen by strangling her with an electrical cord, and then he disposed of her body in a ditch. Just over a week later, Kristen's body was found. The similarities did not go unnoticed, and at the same time, one of Paul's friend's wife contacted the police. Paul was brought in and questioned about where he was on the nights of the two girls when they went missing and they again took DNA samples from him, but they didn't consider him very high up on their suspect list. So in 1992, Paul and Carla got into a fight and Paul physically assaulted her. He beat her all over her body, including on her face and on her head, with a flashlight. She went ahead and went to work after and told everyone she had been in a car accident, but, you know, her co-workers weren't having that, and they called her parents. Her parents came and got her and took her to the hospital, where she told the staff she was a battered spouse and effectively filed charges against Paul. He was arrested, but then he was released on his own recognizance. He attempted suicide, but a friend stopped him, unfortunately. So the police interviewed Carla about how they suspected Paul was the rapist and murderer. She spoke mostly of how he horrifically abused her. So at this point, Paul's DNA had been worked and it was a match to the Scarborough rapist. Later that night, Carla confessed to her aunt and uncle that she was staying with that Paul was indeed the rapist and that he had murdered those girls and that they had videotaped it. So two days later, Carla met with a lawyer who immediately asked for legal immunity in exchange for her testimony, but of course she would not be guaranteed that considering her involvement. A search warrant was executed on their house, but was limited, though they did find videotapes. Carla then agreed to a plea bargain of 12 years. She told the authorities that Paul used to brag that he had raped over 30 women. 
Now, during the trials, Paul maintained that the deaths were accidental and even said that Carla had murdered the girls. He was given a life sentence without parole. Once the videotapes were watched, the prosecution said they would have never agreed to that plea bargain considering how they saw Carla behaving. Carla was eventually released in July 2005 and went on to marry the brother of her attorney and then she had three children. Paul, of course, is still in prison, doing everything he can to get out, but it is highly unlikely that he will ever be freed. Paul was diagnosed with sociopathic narcissism. He does score high on psychopathic personality traits like being glib, selfish, cunning, grandiose, and manipulative. He is a severe sexual sadist. He likes to say his sadistic, sexual, and violent crimes came from having low self-esteem and, quote, misguided coping mechanisms that were exacerbated by stress and alcohol. He has even tried to self-diagnose as having an anxiety disorder. Now, Carla was evaluated by several psychologists and other mental health officials, and one said, quote, she remains something of a diagnostic mystery. Despite her ability to present herself very well, there is a moral vacuity in her which is difficult, if not impossible, to explain, unquote. Some believe she suffers from hybristophilia, which is a disorder in which a person will become sexually aroused by being with a partner who has committed an outrage, cheating, lying, infidelities, and even rape and murder. Now, back in 1993, an exhumation of Carla's sister, Tammy, revealed that the couple had placed a photo of themselves in the casket with her. Just sick. So Paul's stepfather, Kenneth Bernardo, was a sexual deviant, molesting his own blood daughter as well as being a peeping Tom in his own neighborhood. His oldest half-brother had troubling issues of his own and his mother completely detached from the entire situation. And yet, it would appear that Paul, as a young child, did display at least some signs of trouble to come. Nature or nurture? I wish we had more information on his biological father, although there is no known issues that anyone is aware of or that I could find. With Carla, she went from a confident, well-behaved, and disciplined child to this. So guys, what do you think about this case? Carla has gone on to have children of her own. How do you feel about this? Let me know in the comments of the YouTube video or leave me a message on Instagram under at serial underscore killing. Consider becoming a sponsor and thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you. Have a great day.